You're listening to Policy Speaking. I'm your host, Edward Greenspawn, President and CEO of the Public Policy Forum, and thank you for tuning in. On Wednesday, October 26, the Bank of Canada offered its sixth interest rate increase in an attempt to further wrestle down inflation to its targeted 2%. For the first time in nearly 30 years, monetary policy is on the mind of many Canadians and indeed many people around the world. There's a lot to understand about this current moment and what it means for Canadians. Today, I'm joined by Governor of the Bank of Canada, Tiff Macklin, to discuss and better understand the recently released monetary policy report and what the bank is doing to fight inflation. Tiff Macklin was appointed Governor of the Bank of Canada effective June 3rd, 2020. For a seven-year term as governor, he's also chair of the board of directors of the bank and a member of the board of directors of the Bank for International Settlements, which brings all the central banks together. He is chair of the group of governors and head of supervision, the oversight body of the Basel Committee on Banking Supervision, and co-chair of the Financial Stability Board's Regional Consultative Group for the Americas. During the 2008-09 global financial crisis, Mr. Macklem was Assistant Deputy Minister at the Department of Finance, Canada, and represented Canada at the G7, G20, and Financial Stability Board. He also returned to the bank in July 2010 when he was appointed Senior Deputy Governor, and then in July 2014, Mr. Macklem assumed the role of Dean of the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto, from where he returned to the bank as Governor. Welcome to Policy Speaking, Governor. It's a real pleasure to be here. Great to have you with us. And I'm going to take a moment to try to set the stage of where I think we're at. You've now raised the bank rate six times in a single year to 3.75%, highest since before the 0809 Great Financial Crisis. You've told us the bank is trying to balance the risks of under-tightening and over-tightening. And that is, if you don't do enough, Canadians will continue to endure the hardship of high inflation, you said. And if you do too much, you could slow the economy more than necessary. And finally, I guess you've said that the bank sees economic growth, and I quote, is going to stall over the next few months and into next year. So let's start with that as background, how you and your fellow governors will know when it's time to ease up. And how do you know that now is not that time? Well, it's a pretty good summary, Ed. Thank you for that. Let me start with the decision we took, because that really speaks to the fact that, well, it was not the time to pause. And at our last decision, we raised policy rate by 50 basis points. That took it to three and three quarters. 50 basis points, that's still a larger than normal step. It's a big step. And we judged that we needed a big step for a few reasons. First of all, inflation is too high. It's well above our target. And more than that, it's broad-based. It's everywhere. Secondly, even if the economy's slowing, all our indicators suggest it is still in excess demand, and that is driving domestic prices up. You're particularly seeing that in services prices, and these are prices that are determined in Canada. They're not determined in world markets. We actually need to slow spending in the economy to rebalance demand and supply, and that will relieve these price pressures. And the other thing on our mind is that when we look at near-term inflation expectations, they're high. And the longer they're high, greater is the risk that that bleeds into higher long-term inflation expectations. And then it's going to be much more difficult to get inflation down. Inflation risks becoming entrenched. And if that happens, we would likely need much higher interest rates and 
a severe contraction of the economy to get inflation back to target. So for all those reasons, we judged that we needed a bigger than normal step, 50 basis point increase. But coming to when are we going to know that we've done enough, we are starting to see clear evidence that the economy is slowing. You can see it particularly in the housing market. You see it in purchase of big ticket items. These are the intersensitive parts of the economy. These are things that people typically buy on credit. Most people, when they buy a house, they get a mortgage. So they're very sensitive to interest rates. So it's not surprising that that's where you see the effects first. And we are certainly seeing those. We've now raised rates 350 basis points since March. We're starting to see the effects of that, but there are more to come and we will see that move through the economy. So we are going to be watching closely to see how the interest rate increases we've done are feeding through the economy and slowing demand. The other things we're going to be watching for closely is what's happening internationally. We've had these really gummed up global supply chains. There's some evidence they're starting to resolve, but how does that play out going forward? And then very importantly, the evolution of inflation and expected inflation itself. And just to spend a second on inflation, we have seen total CPI inflation has come down. It was just over 8% in June. It's just under 7%, the latest number. That's welcome. It's certainly some welcome relief for Canadians. And certainly we're pleased to see that it looks like it's peaked and it's moving in the right direction. But when you look under the hood, what you see is most of that decline reflects decline in the global price of oil, lower gasoline prices. Inflation, by any measure, it's still broad-based. Two-thirds of the components of the CPI are rising faster than 5%. There is nowhere to hide from inflation. Our measures of core inflation or underlying inflation, they've stopped going up. That's the good part. But they have yet to really clearly turn and move down. And so that is something we're going to be looking for. Tell me if this is correct or not from my reading of the monetary policy report. When you're talking about those numbers, you're talking as people generally do year-over-year numbers. But I think when you showed in the report three-month numbers, that inflation was more like 4%. So is that an indicator that despite the broad growth, et cetera, that things are deaccelerating? There are some positive signs that we're moving in the right direction. And you highlighted one, yes. So if you look at three months rates of inflation, which basically a three-month moving average of the last three months, they have come down. Three months measures of core inflation are running, as you said, about 4%. That's lower than 5%. They moved down. That's good, but 4% is still double our 2% inflation target. So what we're looking for there is we're looking for those three-month rates to come down further, and importantly, for that to be sustained. I mean, the reason we use year-over-year is that we know that month-to-month there's more volatility. Year-over-year smooths some of that out. So yes, there are some encouraging signs. And another encouraging sign I would point to is when we go and ask companies, ask businesses what they're planning to do with their own prices, what they're telling us is that they expect that the rate of increase in the prices of the goods that they sell are going to be lower in the future. That's the rate of increase, not the actual price. Again, that's an encouraging sign. The way I would put it is there are some beginnings of some green shoots here, and we're certainly going to be watching closely to see if inflation does indeed come down and that it looks like it's on a sustained downward track. There was one, let's call it a green shoot, that I was a little uncertain about that I want to ask you what it's based on. So one of the things you also said is that you expect inflation to return to 3% in 2023. 
and then 2% in 2024, but 3% in 2023. Now, 3% is the upper limit of your target. You know, we talk about 2% and you want it to be 2%, but your target is 1% to 3%. So is that based on everything you've done to date where you say it's going to be 3% in 2023? Or is that based on further action? In our forecast that we produce, there's a path for interest rates that brings us back to 2%. So I think we were pretty clear yesterday or at our last decision that we do expect that interest rates will need to go higher to get inflation all the way back to the inflation target. And as we just reviewed a couple of minutes ago, I think we were pretty clear about the things we were watching, You know exactly how much higher it has to go and for how long they need to stay higher. Those are decisions that we'll take at each meeting going forward. What we can be clear on is what we're really watching. Let's go back to the point you made in your comments around the last rate rise, the most recent rate rise, and this trade-off I think you identified, you know, the hardships of high inflation if you don't do enough versus the harmful consequences if you do too much. It seems to me that the second scenario, the side effects of the cure, if you will, of the medicine, people kind of understand that intuitively, and they've seen it. They understand in their own life, job loss, whatever that might look like, but less relatable, as they say, perhaps as the first. So could you paint us, because people haven't experienced inflation in this country in many, many years. So could you just paint us a picture of what that hardship would look like if we don't get inflation under control? As you said, I think one of the reasons why it's a little less relatable is that we haven't had inflation in a long time. And unfortunately, everybody's relearning what inflation feels like. And I think certainly what we're seeing, what we're hearing when you talk to people, people really don't like inflation. It makes it very hard for them to stretch their paychecks to cover their bills. They think they have enough money to pay their bills. And then all of a sudden, the costs are all going up and they can't make it stretch. They're working hard. They're earning a good salary, but it's not going as far as it used to. Money is not holding its value. The other thing you see, and you see it in labor markets, you see inflation, honestly, it makes people angry. They have a feeling of frustration, like they're working hard, but they're just not getting ahead. Some companies are benefiting from inflation. Other companies are being really squeezed by inflation. People get angry that when they feel like some companies are benefiting and it's costing them. This is the problem with inflation. Think of money as like a measuring stick. And imagine if a meter changed length every week, every month, it would be very hard to rely on anything. And that's kind of what inflation does. Inflation's going up and down. All of a sudden, how we measure everything is moving around. People feel frustrated. They feel helpless. And the best way to protect people from high inflation is to eliminate it. Now, maybe we'll come back into some of the history as well later if we have time, because obviously the history of inflation is, just as you're describing, it's a phenomenon that spills into the social realm and spills into the political realm and has been very harmful, obviously, historically. You've also put a lot of emphasis on inflationary expectations, and you spoke about them a moment ago in terms of the short-term ones are there, and you are trying to prevent long-term inflationary expectations from setting in. I just wonder to what extent that's already happened and why you don't think that's already happened. People seem to think of interest rate rises as inflation, not the antidote 
to inflation. And I imagine that's a difficult proposition for the bank to communicate when your mortgage cost is going up because of it. So are you in some ways in fighting inflation, stoking these inflationary expectations? I do think you've hit on something. It is very counterintuitive. Costs of most things are going up. And our solution to that is to raise your costs of servicing your debts. So yes, how's that helping? I get it. It's counterintuitive. But I actually think people do understand that if it's more costly to borrow, they're going to have to pay more to service their debts. If they want to buy something on credit, it's going to cost them more. So they are going to pull back on their spending and they're going to save more. I do think people understand that. So why do we think inflation expectations are well anchored or reasonably well anchored longer term? There's a few ways we measure them. You can look at what the market thinks by looking at what interest rates are, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10-year bond markets. And what they show is that if you look out five years, the difference between real and nominal bonds suggests that inflation expectations are reasonably well anchored around 2%. The other thing we look at closely is we survey businesses and we ask them what they think. We also survey consumers and we ask them what they think. Surveys are not perfect. What we see in those surveys is that, yes, near-term inflation expectations are high, and that reflects the fact inflation's high. But when you ask them what they expect to happen going forward, of course, they don't all give the same answer. There's a lot of diversity of opinion out there. But by and large, they do think inflation's going to come down. They think Bank of Canada will ultimately control inflation. What I will say is that there is what statisticians would call an unusual level of disagreement in the surveys. In other words, people are feeling more uncertain about what future inflation is going to be. And so even though the average is still not far from our target, when you look far ahead, the range of views is wider than normal. And that's certainly a source of concern. We'd like to see expectations fairly tightly centered on our target. There are certainly some risks. I would say so far, Canadians are demonstrating they remain confident that the Bank of Canada will control inflation. But I'm not inclined to test their patients. They are starting to wonder. So starting to wonder is an important factor, obviously. Starting to act on that wonderment is an even more important factor, obviously. And I just wonder what evidence there is. I can remember the last time we had inflation 30 years ago, and we talked through the 70s and the 80s and the 90s about wage price spirals. And obviously, one of the things you're concerned about is it's become baked into actions and demands. Is there any evidence when you're talking to employers, when you look at wage data, that that is beginning to happen? I would say so far, the situation is reasonably in hand. But I would say two things. First of all, once it's out of hand, it's too late. And let me go back a minute to the 70s. I mean, the real lesson from the 70s is inflation was high and variable. And people just came to expect that inflation would be high. And once that happens, then it's really easy for companies to just pass through higher prices directly to their consumers. It's obviously easier for wages to go up and to create that kind of cost push inflation that we saw in the 70s. Are we seeing that yet? No, I don't think to this point wages have become an independent source of inflation. I do think, though, if you look at companies, what you can see is that because the economy has been in excess demand and because inflation has been high, it has made it easier for companies to pass through higher inflation to customers. And one of the things we're going to be looking for is with higher interest rates, as spending slows, 
we want to see that those competitive forces start to work and that companies become more conscious that if they want to keep their customers, they can't just pass on higher prices to the customer indefinitely. And as the economy slows down, I think that's something that you will see. Those natural competitive forces where companies are competing on price to get customers will come back. But particularly when there's a lot of shortages of things, if you're a company and you've got the goods and you can deliver them, it's easier to charge a high price, especially if other prices are going up and people are kind of getting used to inflation. That's a dangerous point. There's been a lot of comment as well that the Bank of Canada has been aggressive even compared to other banks in raising rates quickly, raising rates higher. Does that reflect a philosophical difference or does that reflect as well some of the nature of the Canadian economy? It's always a hard thing to compare yourself to other countries. I mean, we have a very clear mandate. It is true that I think we were certainly among the very first of the advanced countries to start reducing the amount of monetary stimulus. We stopped QE well before most other countries. And we were among the first to raise rates, not the first, but certainly in the leading group. And we have raised rates rapidly. We did that primarily because inflation came up very quickly as we reopened the economy. And our assessment was our best chance of limiting this inflation and getting inflation back down without creating too much of a slowdown in the economy was to move rates up rapidly. We call that front-loading the response. And by front-loading the response, we send a clear signal to Canadians, look, we are serious about controlling inflation. And that helps keep inflation expectations anchored. And by keeping inflation expectations anchored, that avoids the need for even bigger increases down the road. If you look at the international evidence, Ed, what you see is that if you compare front-loaded increases in interest rates compared to more gradual ones, the more gradual ones, typically you end up having to raise rates more eventually, and that causes more pronounced slowdown to get you back to the same place. So yes, we have moved relatively rapidly, and that was deliberate because we think that's the best chance to get inflation down back to our target with the least amount of economic pain. I think what you're describing, it reminds me of an analogy that I'm hearing a lot from the very well-known economist Larry Summers of the States, who's been comparing this to courses of antibiotics, that if you're starting to feel a little bit better, so you stop taking your antibiotics too quickly, the infection is going to probably come back and you're going to have to take antibiotics longer. I think that's something that people can probably relate to. I'll try that one next time. I'll let you know. (laughs) Do let me know. That'll be good. Let's talk for a moment about the job market, about the labor market and the bank's responsibility there or the responsibility it feels. As some of the people listening to this podcast will recall, last year there was a five-year mandate review of the Bank of Canada, which is a regular feature with the government. And there was a change that occurred. There was a lot of discussion around a change to start with that would make it more like the Federal Reserve in the United States, which has a dual mandate about inflation and employment. And I guess I'd say, you can correct me if you think this was a wrong characterization, I kind of came out to like a 1.5 mandate in Canada, where it was clear that your job of targeting inflation was job one, and that employment was now an official factor, a formal factor. And it was called in the mandate, maximum sustainable employment. So you got to target inflation and you're trying to maintain maximum sustainable employment. So what does that mean, maximum sustainable employment? The Fed has to 
deal with maximum employment. It doesn't have the word sustainable. So what does maximum sustainable employment mean first? And then how does that factor into your decision making? I think the first thing to underline about maximum sustainable employment is that it's more of a concept than a number. It's not something that we can observe directly. And it's affected by a lot of things beyond monetary policy, like the aging of society, like technology. In many ways, it's you can't really identify exactly when you're at it, but you can look at the balance in the labor market. So maximum sustainable, what the sustainable part means really is that it's the maximum level of employment that the economy can sustain without creating inflationary pressures. What we're seeing right now is that we've got a very tight labor market, which is symptomatic of an economy that's in excess demand. And when we look at a broad range of labor market indicators, virtually all of them suggest that we're operating above maximum sustainable employment. And that's one of the factors that is driving prices up. I mean, to put it simply, businesses just can't find enough workers to produce all the goods and services that their clients want. And so prices are going up. I take it that's a fundamental supply problem, aging population, other issues. That's something that's going to be with us, inflation or not inflation, right? It's both demand and supply. Demand is running ahead of supply. If we can improve the supply of labor, so for example, immigration is going back up in Canada, that will help improve the supply of labor. If we make it easier, for example, for women to work in Canada because there's better daycare, the female participation, labor market participation rate could go up. So there are ways the more supply comes up, the less demand needs to come down to get the balance. But I mean, what we're seeing right now is we don't have a balanced labor market. It's too tight. And that's having the inflationary consequences that Canadians don't like. I take it then the mandate change, the addition of those words doesn't really fundamentally change the kinds of deliberations that you would have made if they had not been inserted in there. I would largely agree with that. The way I would put it, and this is the way I said it the day I announced the new mandate with the Minister of Finance, is that I think our renewed agreement was both demonstrating the continuity in monetary policy, but it was also adding some new clarity. We've always cared about more than inflation. Of course, of course you care about jobs, you care about the health of the economy. And in fact, I think where it was clearer was having a well-balanced labor market or being close to maximum sustainable employment, that goes hand in hand with low inflation. You know, if you're below maximum sustainable employment, if you've got a lot of unemployment in your economy, you're missing jobs, you're missing income, there's not enough spending, you're going to get downward pressure on inflation. That's what happened at the start of this pandemic when we had extremely high unemployment and inflation was very low. In fact, it was negative for a period. Now we're on the other side of that. We've had an incredibly rapid recovery. The economy is in excess demand. Labor markets are very tight and that's driving inflation up. And in a remarkably short period of time, we've lived both sides of that. What we need to get back is we need to get back to a better balanced labor market with low inflation. And really that's what we're trying to do by raising interest rates. As I mentioned, there's two ways to get back. One is to slow demand and that's what interest rates do. The other way is to try to boost supply. Monetary policy has no influence or control over supply, but there are other policy levers that can affect supply, like immigration, like trying to make it easier to draw more people into the labor force. Like investment in infrastructure, et cetera. But these are the tools that the government has at its disposal, not the bank. Exactly. And to some extent, I think businesses have some responsibility too. I mean, businesses have responsibilities to 
train their workers. And it's not just governments. Because I guess of this sensitivity about jobs, well, it's not the only issue. The bank has been attacked from the left. I have been attacked from the right, just in terms of you're doing too much, doing too little equation you have. I guess, you know, Canadians, their own experience with the bank probably in the last 30 years is that twice it came to their rescue when the international financial system or the pandemic caused great risk to them. And so the bank was like the cavalry. And this time the bank is saying, actually, you've got to take your medicine. So it's a very different thing. And it's spawning a lot of debate, a fair bit of controversy. Which brings me to the question about the independence of the bank. That's really what I want to ask here, because that only occurred in the early 1990s that the bank became truly and formally independent. Could you just explain to us a little bit why that happened and how significant and important that is as you get dragged into political discussions? The independence of central banks isn't something that just happened in Canada. It's a pretty global phenomenon. It started more in advanced countries and has really spread to emerging market countries. And I think that the reasons were pretty clear. The experience of the 70s was very harmful. Inflation was high and variable, unstable. And what we saw in the 70s is that nothing worked well. Labor markets didn't work well. Unemployment was high. There was a lot of strikes. There was a lot of labor strife. You and I were growing up in the 70s. And I'll say, like, I must admit, you know, I was a teenager in the 1970s and I'd read the newspaper and It just seemed everybody felt ripped off. Everybody was angry. There was a lot of strikes. And honestly, I didn't understand. I mean, inflation, when I was a teenager, it just seemed to be something that just sort of arrived from space. And it was a scourge on society. And I really didn't know how to get rid of it. And I think out of that experience, what we learned is, yeah, you know what? When it gets tough, when those decisions get really difficult, because they're really affecting people's lives. If you're raising interest rates, and you know, back then, certainly in the early 80s, interest rates, we all remember, were extremely high. Maybe you tell people how high they were. No, they were like 3.75%. No, they were 20%. If you were getting a mortgage, think about how much of that mortgage payment was going to interest. And yes, people weren't able to pay their mortgages. They were defaulting on their houses. Businesses were going under. And we had a decade of high and variable inflation. It had become embedded in people's expectations. People had just come to expect inflation was going to stay higher. And so unfortunately, it took a very severe recession to drive the inflation out of the system. That's exactly what we're trying to avoid today by moving much more proactively. But to get back to where you were, independence becomes important when the decisions become difficult. Most of the time, when inflation's low, Nobody's that interested in the Bank of Canada. They're happy to know we're doing our job. They're happy to know that inflation is low, but you know they're not paying that much attention. But two things have really changed. We've been through a tremendous amount of turmoil in the last two years. People have relied on governments. They relied on the central bank to take actions to put a floor under this crisis to support recovery. And now the other side of that is we're dealing with high inflation. We're raising interest rates. That's affecting people's lives. We are under much more scrutiny. And yes, people are asking us more tough questions. Frankly, they should be asking us tough questions. Inflation is too high. Interest rates have moved up rapidly. And of course, when people are asking us tough questions, so are their elected officials. And actually, we welcome that. But I will stress that, as I said before, this independence is actually critical to allow us to take the tough decisions that we need to take to fulfill our mandate. And the lesson from history is that when that gets compromised, it doesn't end well. 
do you hear that noise? Are you hearing a lot of that, whether it's from the floor of the House of Commons or whether it's on social media? Are you exposed greatly to that debate? And does that weigh on you? Well, look, there's a lot of commentary out there. There's a lot of advice. There's a lot of opinions. And actually, I think that that's a healthy discussion. So I certainly read as much as I can. I absorb as much as what's out there. But I do feel very confident that we have an independent central bank. I feel no threat whatsoever to the independence of the central bank. Myself and my colleagues on the governing council are taking the decisions based on the best available evidence, analysis, data, and that's what's driving our decisions. Governor, you said earlier, when we're talking about Canada and it's more aggressive stance, perhaps, it's harder money stance in order to beat inflation out of the system more quickly is obviously the point. Canada raised rates a bit earlier than others. One of the criticisms that also been out there is that you know central banks miss this. And I say that collectively, central banks around the world, they didn't see the likelihood of inflation in the same way they thought it would be transitory. When central banks are speaking to each other, and you're in a lot of the committees at which they do speak to each other, is there an examination of that? Is there a self-reckoning about what went wrong or even an acceptance that something did go wrong? Well, I think one of the good things is central bankers do meet fairly regularly in a number of forums, meet in the G7, the G20, together with ministers of finance. We also meet just the central bankers at something called the Bank for International Settlements. And it is a really good opportunity to compare notes, compare strategies. It's been particularly valuable through COVID because the thing about COVID that has been so unique is basically it hit the whole world at exactly the same time. The effects were most of us shutdowns occurred within weeks in different countries. So we've all gone through a very, it's been historically unbelievably synchronized global recession and global recovery. And inflation almost everywhere is now high. You know, we're all dealing with the same things. And so it is very useful to compare strategies and also work through exactly what you asked. I mean, how did this happen? And I guess what I would say is that this started, our economies were recovering quickly as the economies reopened. And to some extent, we were really quite relieved. I mean, at the depths of the contraction, in the depths of this recession, we were really worried. Remember, the effects of this were so unequal. I mean, it was particularly affecting the women, youth, low-income workers, because they're the ones that tend to work in the service sector, which was closed. And so we were really worried that this was going to have what economists call sort of long-term scarring. Think of a new worker. Now, you don't get your first job. You don't get your first experience. You don't get any of that on-the-job training. Like That can affect the whole future trajectory of your income, not just what happens during the pandemic. We were very pleased to see a strong recovery, and those scarring has been much less than we thought. But yes, I mean, coming out of this, inflation has been much higher than we thought. So what happened? Well, the economy reopens, but global supply chains are still gummed up. I mean, there's still protocols. The virus is moving around the world. And the thing about a supply chain, if one piece is closed, the whole supply chain is stopped. People wanted goods, and actually they wanted more goods than usual because they couldn't buy many of the services they wanted. They couldn't go to their gym, so they bought some home gym equipment. But of course, that had to be manufactured. It had to be shipped. And that whole supply chain's gummed up. So we saw this big increase in inflation in goods. And yes, we did think that that was going to be 
reasonably, and I hate to say this word because it's been somewhat ridiculed, transitory. We thought those supply chain issues would work out. We thought as the economy reopened, people would come back to services. So yes, there would be this temporary burst of inflation, but it would largely work its way out. And why did we think that? Well, typically, historically, when we've had these supply disruptions, they tend to be fairly temporary. So if you respond to them, by the time your respond kicks in, the thing has worked its way out and you've overdone it. We tend to wait and yeah, we waited and these supply chain things persisted. And then we also had increases in service price inflation, which that part actually, I think we've been pretty on top of. I think we took the best available decisions we could at the time with the information we had, but with the benefit of hindsight, yeah, we should have started earlier. Your explanation is on the supply side. Earlier in an answer, you said, we need to think of supply and demand together. Was there a demand side part of this calculation as well, or was it really just mostly driven the beginnings of inflation by the supply disruptions? It was both. So overall, demand wasn't that strong because services demand, I mean, nobody's going to a restaurant, nobody's going on a big vacation, nobody's going to a hotel. So the service side was very weak, but because people couldn't do many of those things they wanted to do, they substituted by buying more goods. They bought home entertainment systems. Your kids are all now doing their studying online. You're working online. You probably bought an extra laptop or two. So demand for goods was strong. And we did make sure the demand didn't collapse. I mean, that was a policy success. No, we did. I think what we thought was we thought that the supply would come back and that as the economy reopened, the demand for goods would come down. Once your gym reopened, you'd stop buying more home gym equipment and you'd go back to your gym. And I think it's fair to say, yes, that demand rotation took a little longer than we thought. But I think what really surprised us was just how persistent these supply shocks were. And then let's not forget, Russia invaded Ukraine in February and that further disrupted supply chains and has completely disrupted the global energy space. When you write your memoirs in 10 years or so, and you look back on this time, what will be the lesson that you'll want to impart to future bank governors? You know, Ed, I'm a long way from writing my memoirs, but I actually think it's premature to answer that question. We're kind of halfway through this. We've had this unbelievably disrupted pandemic, and now we're trying to get back to normal. And I think what the memoir is going to look like is going to depend a lot on what does that path back to normal look like? And we're certainly doing our best to get price increases back to normal. That's what Canadians want. And I'm confident we're going to do that, but I can't be sure that there aren't going to be some new bumps along the way. I can't be sure that there aren't going to be some new surprises, some new curveballs. So it's a bit early to write that story. Okay, we'll wait on the chapter one of the memoirs. And in the meantime, we obviously hope that the bank and its governing council will make the decisions that will have this end earlier and with less pain, not no pain, but less pain. Before I let you go, I have to ask you to join the Policy Speaking Book Choice Club. We ask all of our guests to tell us a book they're reading now or that they've read in the past that they think is relevant to the times and that people should have a look at. So what book would you be recommending? I recently just finished a wonderful book. It's called Codebreaker, and it sounds like it's a war story, but it's actually 
about breaking the genetic code. It's about gene editing. It's written by Walter Isaacson. It's the story of Jennifer Dodenow and her Nobel Prize. I will warn you, it's not easy going. I wish I'd paid more attention in my high school science classes. The first part of the book is definitely outstripped my scientific understanding. But fortunately, once you get through that part, it gets a little easier. I did find it a fascinating story. It's very relevant to the development of vaccines and what a virus really is. And that was really why I read it as we were working our way through this pandemic. I'm glad at least you were paying close attention in your economics classes. At the moment, that seems uh, the more important. We'll have other people figure out the biology. Thank you so much for being with us today and for the enlightenment you've offered on the decision-making processes and the puzzle, the very difficult and very consequential puzzle that this is. It's a real pleasure to join you for this discussion. This is a difficult time, and I welcome the opportunity to have a good chat with you about it. Thank you. Thank you. At this point, we like to share a shout out to one of our PPF members for going above and beyond the call of duty and their service to their communities. And this week, we want to say that we're PPF proud of our member, Ban City, for being the first Canadian financial institution to provide a carbon counter on your Visa credit card. Starting in 2023, all Van City Visa credit card holders will be able to track the estimated carbon emissions for each of their credit card purchases. Doing so, the card holders will better understand the carbon footprint of their purchases and be empowered to make decisions to lower their emissions footprint. So congratulations to PPF member Van City on another first and for your role as a leader in sustainability innovation. And with that, it's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in. Please share the episode with a friend and feel free to leave us a review on the podcast platform of your choice. Let us know what you want to hear on Policy Speaking. And if you want to hear more from the Bank of Canada Governor, you can join us on November 10th in Toronto at 11 a.m. for a live session. I want to thank my colleagues at the Public Policy Forum who make this podcast happen. I'm Edward Greenspawn, and this has been Policy Speaking.